Greetings to you in the, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you've not already done so, I want to invite you to join me in Psalm chapter 77. And as you're making your way there, I want to give a brief uh, commercial for a few resources uh, that I'll be highlighting today. All of these are going to be available at our welcome table, and uh, they deal with suffering, grief, and lament. And uh, each of them uh, have a, a bit of a nuanced way of dealing with each of the subjects. Um, one is from uh, Diane Langberg, Suffering and the Heart of God, How Trauma Destroys and Christ Restores. So Diane is a counselor and has been counseling abuse victims for more than uh, 40, 40 years. So there's a few copies of these. All of these will be $5. Um, another very helpful resource, Nancy Guthrie, What Grieving People Wish You Knew About What Really Helps and What Really Hurts. Uh, so this is a very uh, wonderfully practical resource for, uh, from a person who's grieved quite a bit on what grieving people wish that others knew about grief. Um, another one, these are probably my top two favorites here, uh, Kelly Capick, Embodied Hope, a Theological Meditation on Pain and Suffering, and then uh, lastly, the one that probably has been the most beneficial to me outside of God's Word, and that's Mark Brogrip's uh, Dark Clouds and Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. Um, I took this book with me, one of two books, to uh, Malaysia, hoping to read that, and uh, you know the Smiths went with us to, to, to Malaysia. And I uh, pull the two books out, Angie looks over, <clears throat> Angie Smith looks over and sees both of them and uh, asks what I've brought to read. So I show her these two books and she asks about this book on lament and uh, asks if she, can, uh, if she can borrow it for a little bit. And so that was, from, that was on the flight from Memphis uh, toward uh, Southeast Asia. She gave the book back to me as we were landing back in Memphis. And uh, several times throughout the flight, she'd look over at me with a big grin and just like, this book is so good. Like, yeah, that's why I brought it. And uh, other times, uh, I'd feel across the aisle, somebody poked me in the shoulder, and she'd read a big, large uh, paragraph of how helpful this book is. So you can take that one of two ways. Either buy the book, get it, there's 10 copies because Angie likes it so much, or you can look at it as this. If you're ever on a mission trip with her and she asks you what you read, and just grab the, just grab the books from the seat back and uh, tell her it's, uh, you've you got some magazines to read there. So these are available um, in the back and encourage you to grab one of these resources uh, if it so interests you. Psalm 77, suffering, grief, and lament. Hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> My voice rises to God, and I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. Selah. You have held my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I've considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart and my spirit ponders. Will the Lord reject forever? And will He never be favorable again? Has His loving kindness ceased forever? Has His promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? Selah. Then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely 
I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your power redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea, and your paths in the mighty waters, and your footprints may not be known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. May the Lord bless the reading of his word, and let's join together and ask his help. God, we are grateful that we're able to gather here again this morning. And Father, we consider a theme like suffering and grief. And most of us here have some kind of understanding about suffering and grief. In some way, we've all experienced it in different measure, in unique ways. We've all struggled with it in our own respective right. And every single one of us here have, has, has wrestled at some point with what to do with suffering. We've even wrestled with you in some ways. All of us here have struggled in some measure through grief. How long do we grieve? Have we grieved? Should we grieve? Are we grieving? Many times, Lord, we have more questions. In our mind, we have more questions than we have answers. And we would pray, we, we do ask today, Lord, that you would help us to see that you have provided in your word more than answers to hard questions. You've given more than just replies to honest pleas. You give us yourself. God, remind us today that you are the other, you are the one who's on the other end of those prayers. Not as one who is distant and only transcendent, but a God who is near, a God who is present, a God who is active. God, we, we pray that you would help us today. For we understand ourselves to be weak people. And today, we feel it in more unique and pronounced ways. So we pray, Lord, that you would bind up the wounded, bind up the brokenhearted. Save those who are crushed in spirit. Draw near today so we see your glorious face in the midst of great and intense hardships we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Will the Lord reject forever? Will He never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness stopped? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? 
What do you do with such questions? How do you handle such questions when we know they are laid before a sovereign and good and benevolent God? This morning's sermon titled Suffering, Grief, and Lament. I want to just provide just a brief introduction and word on lament. It might be helpful to define what the word lament means. It can be defined as a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. It's an honest conversation with God through our suffering and pain. Literally, it means a loud cry or howl. Or in his helpful book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Mark Vragrup says that in the Bible, lament is more than sorrow or talking about sadness. It is about walking through the stages of grief. Lament is a prayer of pain that leads to trust. I want our ears to land on this definition once again. Keep this statement in view throughout today's sermon as we look at Psalm 77 with a couple added elements. Lament is a prayer of pain in the midst of your suffering that leads you to trust in God. Let me say it one more time. Lament is a prayer of pain in the middle of your suffering that leads you to trust in God. How familiar are we with lament? About a month ago, I sent a survey to the church, and this is one of the questions I included in there. Has lament been a useful tool for you in suffering and working through the process of grief? Or is it something that's relatively foreign to you? 18 people answered this survey. 14 of the 18 said, lament is foreign. Or, I have no idea what it is. Or, I had to Google the term to understand what it meant. I think two of the four that were familiar with it spoke of lament in useful ways. But the Bible is quite familiar with lament. Of the 150 psalms in the Psalter, guess how many of them are considered laments? 67. Roughly 40% of the Psalter are laments. And there are two categories for them, individual and corporate. Lamentations was a written response to the Babylonian captivity that left the city in ruins and focused on the fact that the temple had been destroyed. Jeremiah was acquainted with lament. The weeping prophet that God sent to speak imminent judgment. Jesus was familiar with lament. It's already been prayed. That glorious passage in Isaiah 52 and 53. The suffering servant. Acquainted with grief. Understood sorrow. So we understand in preaching that the voice that we give our attention to is the very voice of God. The Word of God is most important. But we understand that the human voice is connected with preaching. And though I am the voice today, I'm not the lone voice in preaching. Many among us in this congregation are serving as the voice for today's sermon. Pastor Jordan already alluded to the, to the reality that there may be various responses to today's sermon. For some of you, the word might bring God near to you. This, this passage might bring God near to you in hope-filled ways this morning. For some, today might be tough as you consider present sufferings or as you continue to grieve over a loss. All of us, all of us should experience a gentle rebuke for any way that we have not served others well in their suffering. We've all missed the mark. We've all failed, every single one of us, with wonderfully good intentions. We've said things 
that have not always been the most helpful. Sometimes the temptation when there is that gentle rebuke is to shrink back a little bit and just say, well, if I can't say it the right way, maybe I just don't say anything at all. That's not what I'm encouraging any of us to do today. I am encouraging us to move toward one another in compassionate, patient, and understanding ways. We're all growing together in understanding lament. Lament is how we respond to God through our suffering and grief. So secondly, we want to look at Psalm 77 in context. Asaph is the identified one who is the writer of this psalm. He's also the one who's written Psalm 50 as well as Psalms 73 through 83. So totaling, Asaph has written 12 psalms in all. He's one of the sons of Korah and was spared along with several of his siblings when his father died in Numbers 26.10. Psalm 77 is written to the choir director for which 54 other psalms are written. Of the 12 psalms that Asaph is responsible for, five have the title addressed to the choir director and three of them are considered laments. The others are addressed simply as a psalm or a masculine. The ESV Study Bible considers Psalm 77 a lament that is suitable to a time when the people of God are in low condition. The Psalter is made up of 150 psalms which are categorized in five books. Psalm 77 is placed in book 3 beginning with Psalm 73 and concluding with Psalm 79. Psalms of lament have a steady influence within the Psalter. In his commentary on Psalms, James May put Psalm 77 in the category of the prayer for help of an individual. Mays provides several components that are connected with the Psalms where the individual is seeking real help from God. Some of these elements that are included are they are first person accounts, meaning they're acquainted. It includes a petition, a description of the trouble. Reasons for which this petition ought to be heard, expressed confidence of God, and promises of sacrifice and or praise. All a person would need to do, even if, even if when I read Psalm 77, if that's the first time you've ever walked through this psalm or heard it, you would quickly observe that Asaph has honest questions for God during a time when his soul refuses to be comforted. What does a person do when they are suffering? How do they handle this suffering? How do you make your needs and your questions known? To whom do you make these needs and questions known? Do you take them to God? Do you take them to your covenant family? At what point in making a need known to God would it fall in the category of having a critical or complaining spirit? How do you know when you've crossed that line with God? I believe these are just a few of the questions that are natural to mankind that God uses Asaph to address and answer. The Word of God directs our theology, our suffering, our oppression, and grief. Days of trouble and wearisome nights give opportunity for us to flesh out our theology before God. They give opportunities to flesh out our theology of God. And lament helps connect these dots. Kelly Capick in his book entitled Embodied Hope, a theological meditation on pain and suffering, noted this, heartfelt cries and existential questions operate at the core of healthy theology. And suppressing them is more hurtful than a confession of ignorance. So what he is suggesting here, plea to the Lord. Ask your honest and sincere questions. That's actually at the core of healthy biblical theology. As the choir director, Asaph is helping this community understand life's not always upbeat. Asaph blends together in ways not always clear in the rest of Christian Scripture that the redeemed 
should have a theology of suffering and a theology of oppression and a theology of grief. And what we find is lament is applied theology. Psalms of lament are for the covenant community whether you are the chief sufferer or not. Did you hear that? Laments are for the covenant community. Even though some are individual and this one's individual, they are for the covenant community whether you are the chief sufferer or not. God did not intend for Asaph to bear this suffering in solitary confinement. And often that's what suffering and grief feels like. I'm in a prison. I'm in a dark prison with little to no light, little to no interaction, and little to no hope that my prayers are making it any further than this ceiling. That much is clear when Asaph remembers God's wonders of old in verse 11. When he meditates on all of God's work in verse 12. When he recalls how God has made His strength available to His people in verse 14. And that it is through His power that God has redeemed His people in verse 15. God is faithful to His covenant people and reminds them of His eternal faithfulness in the darkest of nights, verse 2. And in their most troublesome of days, verse 2. The Psalter is not always used as it it was originally intended. Most, if not all, the Psalms were originally composed to be sung in temple worship. And through the centuries, they have continued to be sung in church and synagogues. Take any gathering of the church and you should find within the liturgy praying, praising, proclaiming. The Psalms give guide to these liturgical components. Prayers, according to the Psalms, have elements of praise and thanksgiving, of lamenting and petitioning. The Psalms clearly proclaim the glory and majesty of God, and any church not regularly incorporating the Psalter is missing out on a very significant blessing from God. Capic says, once again, if we do not restore space for lament in our individual and corporate church life, our suffering will drive us not only away from others, but will also drive us away from God Himself. Spurgeon describes Psalm 77 as a lament that's for experienced saints as it serves as a transcript of their inner conflicts. How true this is of the Psalms. They're written as prayers. They're written to testify about Christ. Personally, I regularly read through the Psalms so that I know how to pray, so I know what to pray, and so that I'm able to see prayer in action. God does not need the church, but He created us as one who, He created us as those who need the church and has designed the church as the primary source for care. Therefore, suffering, even when it's individual, is still corporate. So when I read through this passage, it has four natural breakdowns, but our outline is going to have three points today. The first one is this, verses 1 through 6. Cries from the despondent. Verses 1 through 6. With his God-given voice, Asaph is crying out to God. Twice in this section we read, my voice rises to God. These first few verses are quite dark with such phrases such as this. In the day of my trouble, my soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, I am disturbed. When I sigh, my spirit grows faint. You are holding my eyelids open. I am so troubled, I cannot speak. I remember my song in the night, which is a song of remembrance, but it's a song of remembrance recalling days that were a bit happier than the present days. What's going on with Asaph? We don't know the specifics, but we do know the intensity. The language in verse 2 helps us to see that these are phrases based on suffering that Asaph 
has experienced in the past, yet he is continually grieving. These present realities are not sudden. This has been a very long ordeal for him. So far, the crier pleas to God have brought no comfort. In fact, Asaph says that he is disturbed. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. He is troubled to the point of not being able to speak. I've prayed what I can pray. I've said what I can say. I've remembered what I can remember. I've meditated on what I can meditate. I have no words left to give. I'm in so much despair. I can't even keep my eyes open. I want to go back to something briefly. Not knowing the details of this psalm, and not knowing the details of many other psalms, I believe are helpful in at least these two ways. One is it will help us to be less tempted and less inclined to compare our suffering with Asaph's. Your suffering is your suffering. Anything that causes you pain, anything that causes you affliction, anything that has to do with you and your sanctification matters to God. It matters to God. Run to God the race that God has marked out for you. Colossians 1.24 Paul saying, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He's saying this to the Colossian church. And in my flesh I am filling up. In other words, I'm doing my share of what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is the church. Our sufferings individually are corporately in the sense that we are filling up. We are completing that which is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. That in no way means that the cross was not sufficient. That the sufferings of Christ were not sufficient. It's simply stating that the path for the Christian would be one that's marked and paved with suffering. Second is... And I love this. I love this. You will be able to insert the details of your life into the lament. That's good stuff. One of the reasons we know little or, or fewer details about some of the Psalms, I think is in part, so that you can import the details of your life into the Psalm or into the lament. In one sense, these Psalms are written with space. In between the phrases, so you can insert your requests. You can give your praise. You can give your thanks. You can bless His holy name. You can call out to Him specifically for help in specific ways. Asaph is facing significant hardship. And he's serving, in, serving as an example for how to give voice to God for the very matters that are pressing into life. Asaph answers the question, what do I do with hardships? By saying that he sought the Lord in the day of his trouble. Troubles can be so hard upon a person that it wearies them. It makes, them hard, it makes it hard to keep their eyes open. It even causes their mouths to be shut. And as one who is deeply troubled to the degree of refusing to be comforted, Asaph provides hope for others who are struggling as well. By praying these psalms, those who have no problems and difficulties in their lives can learn to sympathize with those in trouble and pray for those who are suffering and are being persecuted. Hardships have a residual effect upon others who are near due to either similar circumstances or as they themselves observe the sufferer. We're thankful, very thankful, that Asaph doesn't stay here. He doesn't remain here. God doesn't, God doesn't allow him to be alone in his grief. Nor does God allow him to be overcome with sorrow. Yes, the language would suggest otherwise, but the psalm does not stop with verse 6. Asaph is led by the Lord 
to have an, honor, an honest conversation with God. So our second point, verses 7 through 9, an honest talk with God. An honest talk with God. Remembering, meditating, pondering, lead to six very honest questions to God about God. Verses 7 through 9, will the Lord reject forever? Will God never be favorable again? Has God's loving kindness ceased forever? Has God's promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has God in His anger withdrawn His compassion? God is not silent to Asaph. Nor is He silent toward those He has redeemed through Christ. We have no record in this psalm of God clearly speaking a word to Asaph. But we know this has taken place based on what we read of at the end of the psalm. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and He will save those in their day of trouble. The precious truths of God in the previous two sentences are not always at the very forefront of the sufferer's mind. For Asaph, remembering God was disturbing. The ESV renders this word as moaning. The NIV translated as being as, as a groaning. When it seems God is quiet, sometimes even the attributes of God that you know and believe have a potentially souring effect upon the soul because it leads you to wonder, is He listening? And if so, why is He not acting on my behalf now? Johnny Erickson Tata, in her book, When God Weeps, mentions this, on the questions in Psalm 77, the psalmist's despair turns godly when it turns Godward. Something awesome has to happen when we choose the direct line to the Lord. We see the process for biblical lament in this psalm. Initially, Asaph refuses to be comforted. He's, he's grieving. The remembrance of God does not bring him joy. He's disturbed. He's also having a hard time understanding his suffering in the light of God's character. Each of these questions, it understands, with each of these questions, Astaf understands these things about God. He knows him to be loving. He knows him to be gracious. He knows him to be patient. He knows him to be compassionate. He knows him to be favorable to his people. He knows him to be faithful to his covenant. Asaph knows these precious characteristics of God's essential nature and character. God is not so insecure that he cannot handle our honest pleas and questions. If the questions in Psalm 77 were not so clearly voiced by Asaph, I would, have a tr I, would, I would have a hard time believing that these would be the kind of questions that you should ask God. When we look at these questions and we understand them as a whole, we can see that these are expressions of faith rather than doubt. Did you catch that? Initial reading, there, there's no doubt there may be some element of doubt that's here. But rather than seeing them only only as doubt, see them also as expressions of faith. We don't understand these questions as though Asaph is wagging his finger at God in anger and saying, you are not loving. You are not compassionate. Your promises can no longer be trusted. Asaph knows deep down that each of these characteristics, acceptance, favor, love, promises, grace, compassion, each of these are essential qualities of God. This is what God is like. This is who He is. This is what He does. This is what His people are to expect of Him. This is what His people see when they see His wonders. This is what His work looks like on display. This is the glory and the majesty and the splendor of God. I want us to get this. Asaph, is petitioning God based on the very character and essence of who God is and what He's like. 
That's how he's appealing to him. That's how he's appealing to him. I want you to lean in with me. Loved ones, this is not doubt. It's faith. He is the one who urges us to be like the persisting widow. He is the one who says in James, you have not because you ask not. He is the one in Psalm 121 who neither sleeps nor slunders. He is the keeper of his people. I'm going to read this. Psalms of Lament allow us, from Capic's book, to speak from the darkest regions of the heart where our despair threatens to overwhelm us. In so speaking, we do not exhibit a lack of faith, but stand in a biblical tradition that recognizes that no part of life, including the most hideous and painful parts, is to be withheld from God, who loves us, who in Jesus Christ speaks the psalms of lament alongside us, and who proclaims hope when there can, at least for the time being, be no hope in us. The church would do well to recover this biblical practice of lamentation. So let me ask you, do you have honest conversations with God? Do you make specific requests from Him? Many of the prayers that I grew up hearing in the church were general things like, Father, forgive us of our sins if we have sinned against You. That's general. That's generic. Color your prayer life with the many descriptive petitions in the Psalms. The Psalms have so many ways that give voice to our prayers. Don't forget that these are human authors. They are human authors, authors under the divine influence of the Holy Spirit. God wanted the prayers recorded so that we would have all the freedom necessary to pray them back to Him. God loves for His people to seek Him through His Word, to pray to Him through His Word, and to be held together by His Word. Third, turning Godward. Verse 10 through 20. Something quite significant happens in verse 10. The cries, the pleas, they lead to a very honest and transparent talk with God. Again, we see the faithfulness of the covenant-keeping God on display. He does not leave him there. Verse 10 is a significant turn here. Then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. One translation renders it, I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. Translators are a bit divided on how to translate the Hebrew word shanath as it can either be translated to change or it can be translated as years. Either way, it doesn't alter our understanding of God whether you go with the translation that we've read here in the New American Standard, the right hand of the Most High has changed, or some of the earlier translations that render it, I will remember the years. Because Asaph is clearly remembering. He's meditating. He's musing on the God who is immutable. Unchangeable is an attribute of God and there have been years to recount the faithfulness of God. So not only is he drawing upon God's faithfulness in this present life, he is, he is drawing upon God's eternal faithfulness. God does not shift. He does not change because God has not shifted and he will not change. These cries and pleas, or excuse me, cries and pleas that don't turn Godward are really complaints. They're not lament. Biblical lament moves you toward God to once again be able to give praise to Him. Lament, help, lament helps us to see that even though trouble surrounds us, God's compassions will never fail. If we do not bring our sorrow, suffering, and grief to God, how else will we experience in greater measure His abundant compassion? In biblical lament, the king listens to his children. He welcomes your pleas. He is a not, he, he's not offended with your questions. He listens 
as one who is not aware that suffering exists, or not unaware that it exists, he listens as the one who is sovereign in suffering. He listens fully aware that he sent his son so that his son can sympathize as our great high priest with each of your weaknesses. Suffering and grief make us wonder about the nearness, goodness, and love of God. Lament allows us to ask these questions to our faithful father so that he can draw near with immediate help. We can boast in our weakness when he is our stronghold. We can boast in our weakness when he is our strength. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus prayed that prayer and he lifted, picked it up from Psalm 22, was not met with, why are you asking this question? Weren't you with me before the foundation of the world? Don't you know that this has always been the plan? Don't you realize that within our Godhead, this was never a matter of discussion or a point of contention or controversy? Jesus hadn't suddenly forgotten about the eternal decree. He knew. He prayed. He poured out His heart in prayer before the Lord. His Father listened. He heard. And Jesus was crushed. He was crushed so that we can understand the purpose of suffering and grief. He was crushed so that we wouldn't be crushed. Our Father in Heaven knows what it's like for a son to die. He killed His very own Son for our redemption. Capic said this here, a full lament is deadly. We know this because when Jesus fully and truly enters into lament, it kills him. He dies. But in this case, his lament was not for himself, but for others. He enters in so that our laments don't have to kill us. Godly lament is a prayer language of the suffering and grieving heart. It is directed Godward. It focuses on a being, a person. It's a humble admission of our weaknesses and our frailty. It acknowledges that we need help and allows us to humbly make these specific petitions to our Father. In Exodus 19.4, the Lord brought the people out to Himself. The Hebrews didn't understand deliverance like this. Why did God bring us out to the wilderness to die? God was bringing them to Himself. Exodus records several cries of Israel that we might understand as lament. They were pleas, and they were definitely complaints, but they did not understand God as the one who orchestrated their deliverance. This is what it is like to complain with no hope. That's not a lament. It's a complaint. To suffer and to grieve without hope is maddening. Verse 19 and 20, Your way was in the sea, and your paths in the mighty waters, and your footprints may not be known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Asaph is drawing upon the covenantal faithfulness of God in Exodus. He's drawing upon the covenantal faithfulness of God. But he doesn't get there immediately. He doesn't, go, he doesn't make a beeline to Exodus. It's after the Selah. It's after pouring out his complaint to God. It's after having the opportunity to ask these honest questions to God. Where am I going with this? Don't feel the pressure to give hurting people reminders about their justification in Christ while the pain is still raw. Our justification is not the silver bullet, immediate cure-all. Trust that God is capable enough to get this person from one side of the shore safely to the other side through the raging waters. You recall that Exodus account in Exodus chapter 14 and 15. The waters walled back. The Lord led His people on dry land. That's the event that Asaph is drawing upon right here. Verse 19, he's saying God's way was in the sea. God's path was in the mighty waters. Even though your footprints might not be known, you led your people by the hand. There's something divine here. Moses and Aaron are types of Christ as prophet and priest. This is a, this is a beautiful picture of the redemption that we have in Christ. A song 
that Moses is going to write and sing in Exodus chapter 15. Asaph is drawing upon the generational faithfulness of God. His remembrance, his meditation, his musing led him to recount and recall God leading his people. This is something here important to note. In the Exodus, we learn about redemption. We learn about deliverance. We learn about expiation, God's covering of our sin. We learn about the sovereign God loving and redeeming a people who regularly complain despite Him providing manna and water every day for them for 40 years. So when suffering is raw and the wounds are still open, we run a risk of not letting people know important truths about God and to receive comfort from God when we try to short-circuit or shortcut or build a false bridge. Asaph in Psalm 77 didn't run straight to the Exodus. God's way and path were through the waters. This was the path of holiness. In suffering, we have to grapple with the reality that God's way is in the sea. we got to wrestle with God's path in the mighty waters. We have to cry out and plead and wonder and question, Are you there, God? I cannot see your footprints. The very question itself is a turning toward God. This is where biblical lament takes us. It takes us to God so that He can reassure us with His character. He can be our trust and we can feel His mighty grip. In Exodus 33, Moses is interceding for the people and he makes these three requests of God. Lord, let me know your ways. Give me your presence and show me your glory. Psalm 77, 13 says God's way is holy. It holds out that his presence is that his his presence is that he is the strength and power of his people. His glory is that he has redeemed his people to himself through the promised suffering servant. Suffering is the path to his glory. Grief will one day be part. Uh, grief will one day part and be removed and will be given to eternal, joyful bliss. The Hebrews knew that they couldn't stand against the Egyptians. They knew that they were done if the waters ceded. Biblical lament recognizes this, recognizes this very same reality. If left in my suffering and grief, I will surely die. God is patient. He is going to see you through to the other side. I want to pause and say, perhaps there's someone here who needs to hear and be left with that phrase. God is going to see you through to the other side. He's going to see you through to the other side. He's holding your hand from one shore to the next, from grief to glory. I want to focus a little bit more on this theme of redemption held out in Psalm 77. If we're honest, none of us really wants to suffer. We want to move, be able to move past the grief to peace to joy. We want to be able to say, as one person told me at one time, I no longer dread getting out of bed. We want to be able to join in with David in Psalm chapter 30, verse 5. Though weeping may last for a night, a shout of joy comes in the morning. Those redeemed by God do have hope in the day of trouble. One of the harshest evidences of suffering and oppression in the Bible is the slavery of God's people. The deliverance of the Hebrews from the bondage of, e of Egyptian slavery is a pearl of redemption that's thread throughout the Bible as the people of God are called to remember and meditate upon what God did in delivering His people from the bondage of slavery. Though no explicit reference in, is provided in Psalm 77 for His deliverance, we can assume that this deliverance was one of the many things that Asaph had in mind when he was remembering, meditating, and musing upon the works and wonders of God. God's Old Testament example of delivering His people from the bondage of slavery was a precursor for delivering His people from the bondage of their own sin. God required a sacrifice, and this sacrifice was the very one whom He sent from heaven. The Bible refers to this, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, as, as a sin offering. 
provided a name. It was Jesus, the Messiah. He was promised in the Old Testament, Isaiah 52 and 53. And he fulfilled all that God required as the one who suffered on our behalf. God's promise of deliverance was fulfilled through the salvation of his people, Matthew 1.21, by his choice, select, blameless son to take away their sin through his bloody death on the cross. The honest questions posed by Asaph do have answers, and the answer is the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who is our redemption. For the redeemed, it would seem ideal if they never had to suffer. Christ rose from the dead to give life to the people of God. And there are times recorded in the Bible where the people of God suffer in excruciating ways, perhaps giving them similar questions to Asaph's. God answers Asaph's questions in Psalm 77 that he has not rejected his people, that his loving kindness has not ceased, that he has not withdrawn his mercy. Throughout the Bible, God's people are called to trust him because he is their salvation. The Bible reminds the redeemed that we will suffer, but to have peace that God has overcome the world. And I'm skipping tons of references that I have in here. How do the redeemed who suffer immense hardship make it through the night and endure the day of trouble that Asaph has encountered? They do so by beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ. Thread throughout Scripture, beginning with, Old, beginning with the Old Testament saints looking for the coming of Christ and moving to New Testament saints looking unto Christ, the redeemed of God are transformed as they behold Christ's glory. God has saved them and is saving them for the glory of Jesus Christ. The redeemed have hope in the consummation of God's kingdom. As his covenant people loved eternally by the eternal Godhead, the redeemed have hope that the sufferings of this world will pale in comparison with the glory one day be, to be revealed to us. Romans 8, 18. They understand, however hard the nights and days of trouble are, that this light and momentary affliction is producing for those whose citizenship is in heaven an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. They anticipate saying, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord, come quickly. And because the redeemed have it, this eternal promise in Christ, they can still weep, but not as those who are without hope, 1 Thessalonians 4. God never promises that the suffering is going to lift. He never gives us a timetable for when the days on earth will be light and easy. What he does promise is this. One day, as the righteous judge, he will right every wrong that has been committed. As one who has suffered, God identifies and sympathizes with your suffering. He is acquainted with your grief. He is present and on the scene in your trouble, and he promises comfort in Christ. God has for you an eternal inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, kept by him, will not fade away, and is protected by his power. So why is it that we turn to God in trust? Because he's acquainted with grief. Because he understands what it means to lose a son. Because his compassions will not fail. Because he is love. Because his loving kindness toward uh, his people will not cease. He is the song. He is our song in the night. This is who we are to him. We are his delight. He rejoices over us. We are his beloved children. He knows our sorrows. He's acquainted with our grief. He is the man of sorrows. He sympathizes. Why do we turn Godward? Where else can we turn? We, there's no other place for us to turn. Christ is not only all we have, or excuse me, He's not only all we need, He's all we have. So practice some practical instructions on lament. I just want to say, just by way of example, I think Jason and Melissa Harrington have served this church in some wonderfully helpful ways in showing us how to suffer well, to grieve, to lament, and to do so corporately. When it comes to suffering and grief, perhaps your voice has been on the end of some of these questions here. Why is it that I'm suffering? Is it even okay for me to ask this? How long is this suffering going to last? Is it okay for me to ask that? I'm angry. Is it okay to be angry with God? What do I do with my anger? The quick answer to that question would be no, it's not okay to be angry with God. What is the purpose of this suffering? When is it that God is going to answer? 
How do I have hope when I can barely get out of bed? Suffering's hard and complex. It's emotionally charging and physically challenging. Suffering also puts us in a uniquely privileged position where we experience his nearness. You understand what it means or what he means as our refuge. Suffering and pain put us in the most vulnerable positions. Consequences that we have as a result of our own sin are there by our own doing. We have no one to blame but ourselves when it's our sin. But there are ways that we suffer which are not as a result of sin. Yes, all suffering is a result of the, as, is a result of the fall, but not all suffering is a result of individual sin. Where are we vulnerable? We have questions that no one can answer. We have pain that no medicine or hug can relieve. The darkness doesn't seem to lift. It feels like we are held underwater, barely enough to catch a glimpse of breath. Here is where God meets us. And here is where only God can meet us. The disconnect that we feel from God in suffering and grief is connected with lament. The psychological, emotional, and physical turmoil and spiritual turmoil we feel is where God meets us. Capic said that no one but the living God can handle our lamentations. Pouring out our heart to God enables us to experience both the transcendence and eminence of God. It helps us to experience tangibly what we already know in our mind. It closes the gap between head and heart. This is how the transcendent God draws eminently near. Isaiah 57, 15, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place, his transcendence, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, his eminence, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Some of you here may be sitting and struggling a little bit and saying things like, I know, I, I understand, I've read these Bible studies, these Bible stories, but God's not near. Or perhaps you feel that in this sermon, I'm doing the very thing that I'm encouraging people not to do. You're just, you're just throwing verses and stories my direction. Can I say to you that it's okay? Acknowledge that you have deep-rooted pain in your life. Can I encourage you to sit with God and pour out your complaint to Him? Can I encourage you to contemplate His character? Can I encourage you to linger in His promises? Can I encourage you to invite someone into this grieving process this is not a formula this is not two plus two equals immediate joy it's not three minus three equals no more pain though not formulaic there is a time frame second corinthians 4 17 for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison Lament is both care and protection for the church. Care in the sense that you acknowledge the pain, suffering, and grief. It's there and you acknowledge it. I remember a little more than 10 years ago when uh, my wife's sister passed away. I was currently working at Starbucks at the time. Missed a few days from work. Went back to work. And the manager there never said a word about it. Acknowledge when people are suffering. You acknowledging it is not going to make it worse. You acknowledging is, not, is obviously not going to encourage them to think about it more. Acknowledging it just says you are aware and you care about it. If you don't acknowledge it, the one who is grieving is going to be led to wonder, does this person really care? Lament is also protection for the sheep in the sense that lament helps a person. Lament helps us to not make shipwreck of our faith. You remember the parable of the sower of the seed, that, that uh, seed that fell um, on the soil and when the hardships and trials of life happened, what, what, what happened to that seed? It, it choked it. It choked it out. 
In Exodus 16.3, the Hebrews complained and said, it would have been better had they died in Egypt by their meat pots. Translation, they're saying this, it would have been better for us to have died as an Egyptian than to be in the wilderness. What they had not yet grasped is that the recurring theme through Exodus is that God brought them out in order to bring them in. To the Hebrews, the wilderness was the place to die from hunger. But to God, it was this. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. How I bore you on eagles' wings and how I brought you to myself. The elements of a biblical lament are a cry to God. They're remembering His past faithfulness. It's a complaint. It's a confession of sin or a claim of innocence. It's a request for help. Sometimes there's a response from God. But there's always, always turning to God in trust. Always turning to God in trust. I'm going to skip over a number of things. I've listed uh, quite a few hymns and quotes and stuff. And I'm going to close I'm going to close with this. We will only discover hope when we are ruthlessly honest about what lies between us and that hope. At least such truth-telling is required if we, ever to, if we are ever to know the true hope of the ancient Christian confession. The church denies the power of the gospel when it trivializes grief and belittles physical pain, over-spiritualizing our existence in such a way as to make a mockery of the Creator Lord. Faithfulness to the gospel requires the Christian community to deal with the messiness of human grief. Biblical faith is not meant to provide an escape from our physical pain or to belittle the darkness of depression and death, but rather invites us to discover hope and grace amidst our struggle we've all we, we each of us need to grow in the way that we care for those who are suffering those who are grieving the person who just learned they have stage four cancer doesn't need to hear to live as christ and to die as gain the person who recently lost a loved one doesn't need to hear well i guess god needed another angel in heaven the person suffering a miscarriage doesn't need to hear, well, at least you have the opportunity for other babies, or maybe this child wasn't the child for you. It was the child for you. The family struggling with infertility doesn't need to hear, well, maybe there's just something quite not right in you, and God's correcting it in you so that you'll be a better parent. The person still grieving months, even years after the suffering, doesn't need to hear, you still haven't gotten over this yet? Maybe you haven't said this, but these are some of the common expressions people use when they're trying to help. I've thought if something tragic were to happen to April or the kids, I've thought of having a sign there at the funeral home with things for people to avoid saying. Isn't it crazy that oftentimes in those settings, the people who are grieving are the ones who have to help the people who are coming because they simply don't know what to say. I've been there. I've been in those lines before and thinking, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm third in line. I'm about to shake their hand. I'm about to hug them. I'm about to say something. What do I say? We've all, we've all been there. Perhaps you might be tempted to say to a person, I know exactly what you're going through. In reality, you don't. I had a conversation with a brother here who had experienced similar sufferings as myself. And he said to me, well, you know how I feel. And my response to him was, actually, I don't. There are similarities, but your suffering is unique. I want to know how you're doing. I want to know what this suffering is like for you. Some people will say to others, well, at least your loved one didn't have to suffer. Or, well, maybe it's just God's will. 
We should be conscious of what we say to people who are suffering and grieving. What we say is not always what they hear. Take any of the examples above and consider what it might sound like to a grieving person. Is it wrong for me to want to have my loved one back? Is my suffering less because I already have children? Is there something wrong or broken with me? Does this person think I'm about to make shipwreck of my faith? Sit with them. Listen. Pray. Weep. Pray over them. Let the suffering person draw strength from your prayers of boldness to God. That would be helpful for Asaph. I can't hold my eyes open. I'm disturbed. My spirit's faint. He would be helped by another brother or sister in Christ praying prayers of boldness over him. Remember, God's not insecure to have Asaph ask questions about his essential nature and character. So we don't need to assume that when a... That what a person who is still relatively raw in their grief, that they're about to make shipwreck of their faith simply because they're grieving. God's way is through the waters. He's going to see them from shore to shore. God will preserve the saint, especially when he says in Acts chapter 14 that it's through many tribulations that we will enter the kingdom of God. It's why we have to even consider phrases like or just look to Jesus, or just cling to Jesus, or uh, sending a relevant Bible text on suffering when the suffering is raw, and the, when the person is still trying to make sense of how to grieve. A sincere saint is not going to tell us that that statement is wrong. It's not wrong. But it may make them feel like we are assuming that they are not looking to Him and His sufficiency. To lament is how we look to and trust in the sufficiency of Christ. It's not a beeline. Asaph didn't make a beeline to the Exodus. God didn't require him to make a beeline to the Exodus. God was okay with him to sit in his grief. Why? Because God was confident. Was confident he was going to get him there. Limit is the language of those Stumbling in their journey to find mercy in dark clouds. God is our refuge. He is our present help in trouble. Let's pray.